Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Across history, American and Russian intelligence have interfered in elections in order to help their preferred candidate and disadvantage disadvantage the candidate they oppose. But the difference is sort of your hopes for the system. So the Soviet Union and then Russia have sought to tear down the system, which is a democracy because elections are held in democracies. And then with Putin today, um, his aim is to elect candidates who are authoritarian minded, divisive, um, exclusive rather than inclusive, nationalist rather than internationalist, who will corrupt and tear down their democracies from within. Contrast that with the American objective, which is that when America has engaged in covert electoral interference, the motivation behind these operations for American presidents is to support candidates who will strengthen or guard their democracies. 2020. The election is now only four months away. What do you expect from the Russians uh, this time around? What I'm watching for from between now and election day is how Russia seeks to manipulate voters, how Russia seeks to corrupt our information space in order to get Americans to support Donald Trump and also in order to sow discord and um, chaos in our society. I would also keep my eye out for whether Trump will seek to incite unrest or seek to delegitimize the election if he loses. But there is there should be no illusion that if Donald Trump loses, Russia will be done with engaging in American politics. That's just not um, how the Russian government works. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. David Scheimer is a fellow at Yale University and is pursuing a doctorate in international relations at Oxford University. He has written for the New York Times, the New Yorker, and Foreign Affairs. 
He has just published a riveting book titled Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. I just sat down with David to talk about his new book. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. David, thank you for joining us. It is very good to have you on Intelligence Matters. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Congratulations on your new book, Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Influence. I found it to be an absolutely terrific read, and I would recommend it to my listeners. It is certainly timely given the election that is only four and a half months away. So the book, Rigged, is a history of covert electoral interference. So, David, perhaps two questions before we dig into it. The first is, how did you come to write it? What got you interested in the entirety of the subject? Yeah. So um, I would say after um, the 2016 election, I'd been studying very intensely Russian and Soviet history. And the thought was just in my mind that while Russia's operation was treated as sort of novel and out of nowhere, that there might be more of a, of a history there. And I spent the summer of 2017 reporting um, for the New York Times as an intern in Berlin. And while I was there, I was able to interview a former East German intelligence officer for about six hours. Um, and he worked for the Stasi and he helped execute a spectacular operation to interfere in an electoral process in West Germany in 1972. So I started digging into that and ended up spending just a, a year researching that operation extremely intensely. And once I had that operation sort of established, and I also had 2016 as a point of comparison, I thought sort of what else is out there? And then um, I was able to start pursuing my PhD at Oxford. And while I did that, I just dug and dug, found more and more operations across history to covertly interfere in elections. And eventually I started blending them together, reestablishing sort of an arc um, around this and trying to restore history to the subject of covert electoral interference from 1919 all the way through to our present moment. So just so our listeners are clear what we're talking about, and this is the second kind of basic question, what's the definition of covert electoral interference? So what what are the conditions that have to be met for you to call it that? Exactly. That, yeah. And that's, and that's essential. So um, a covert electoral interference operation it, it has to meet the qualifications qualifications of those three words, covert, electoral, and interference. So for something to be covert, it means that it's non-attributable. It means that the hand of the interfering actor is hidden. So a public endorsement wouldn't count because, let's say, Barack Obama endorses the, the Remain campaign in the United Kingdom. That's, that's attributable. We know he did that. But let's say Russia releases emails through a third party. The effect of that is visible. We see the emails, but it's through WikiLeaks, so we don't know it was Russia, and therefore it's covert. If something's electoral, that means that it's targeting a democratic vote of succession. It means it's targeting an electoral process. Um, so, you know, a lot of folks have studied coups, staged coups in countries like Iran and Guatemala. That would not qualify because that is not targeting targeting an electoral process. We're talking about when people are casting ballots for one leader or another. And then interference means that you're deploying active measures. It means that you're trying to influence what is happening. You're not just watching, you're acting. And that can range from, you know, there are many different tactics. I'm sure we'll talk about what those are. But the idea there is that you are, in fact, interfering. So in, in, in general, what I'm talking about is a concealed foreign effort to manipulate a democratic vote of succession. And when you meet those three qualifications, you're then engaging in covert electoral interference. So, David, the, the book is divided into three parts. 
the long history of covert electoral interference, including by the United States, our more recent experience with 2016, and a look at what we need to do to defend ourselves. So let's take each of those in turn, along with a couple questions about uh, the 2020 election as well. So first, some questions about the long history of this covert electoral interference. You found in your research that both Russia and the United States have a history of doing this. But what I found particularly interesting is what you identified as the key differences between the two. One of those is that one country stopped such interference at one point and the other kept going. Why did the U.S. stop? What's the answer to that question? Yeah. um, So I would say that uh, maybe uh, in terms of the historical arc of it, because whether the CIA did stop is, is sort of a part of a larger story. And that story can be broken down into three phases. And that is this broader history where from 1919 um, up until 1948, the Soviet Union was interfering in elections all over the world, first under Vladimir Lenin, then Joseph Stalin, the US wasn't. In 1948, um, the CIA is authorized to engage in covert action with the express purpose of interfering in the Italian election in 1948, and then engaged in electoral interference in many countries thereafter through the Cold War in competition with the Soviet KGB. A divergence then took place after the Cold War, where Russia under Vladimir Putin has doubled down on this practice, has been interfering in elections aggressively and frequently through enhanced methods, um, incorporating new digital tools into his operations, whereas the CIA has moved away from this practice. Um, The last recorded instance that I could find of the CIA engaging in covert electoral interference was in 2000. Um, in Serbia against the tyrant Slobodan Milosevic. There was a debate over whether to do so against Iraq in 2004. But the general um, the general arc here is that the CIA has moved away from this practice. And the reasons they've done so is because, A, there isn't a call to action as there was during the Cold War that's consistent and clear. And B, the risk of getting caught is much higher. And if you're America, unlike Russia, if you're getting caught, it could end up actually undermining you because you're purporting to say, you know, we support democracy, we support free and fair elections, we oppose what Russia's doing to our elections, and yet we're actually manipulating elections behind the scenes too. That 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 contradiction became untenable, and therefore American foreign policy adjusted. And do you have any idea whether the Trump administration may have gone back in this direction to covert electoral interference? My sense from folks who I talked to who left either the CIA after, um, who served in the CIA under the Trump administration or as key aides like Steve Bannon or H.R. McMaster, who I was able to interview, is that there hasn't been a meaningful policy shift here um, and that um, the the idea still holds that this could be an exceptional um, weapon in exceptional circumstances to use, but know that there hasn't been some sort of monumental shift where we've effectively reentered our Cold War posture. Um, so, David, the other the other difference I wanted to ask you about between the U.S. and Russia is the targeting of the system of government as opposed to a particular individual within a system. Russia and the United States have historically had some different objectives in those two regards. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so there's so there's a, an ascent. That's the essential difference, really, between the history of American and Russian electoral interference, which is that. 
Russia historic. So, well, I guess it's easier to start with what's the same. And what's the same is that across history, American and Russian intelligence have interfered in elections in order to help their preferred candidate and disadvantage disadvantage the candidate they oppose. The historical record spells out very clearly that both countries have done that in many, many different elections. But the difference, as you alluded to, is about sort of your hopes for the system. So the Soviet Union and then Russia have sought to tear down the system, which is a democracy because elections are held in democracies. So the Soviet Union aimed to get communist candidates elected who would actually um, stop holding elections. And that's what you saw happen in countries like Poland, East Germany, Hungary, Czechoslovakia at the start of the Cold War in the immediate post-war period. And then with Putin today, um, his aim is to elect candidates who are authoritarian-minded, divisive, um, exclusive rather than inclusive, nationalist rather than internationalist, who will corrupt and tear down their democracies from within. Contrast that with the American objective, which is that when America has engaged in covert electoral interference, and this is again spelled out, I reviewed thousands of documents, thousands of declassified transcripts, and what those spell out is that the motivation behind these operations for American presidents is to support candidates who will strengthen or guard their democracies. So whether that means supporting candidates who um, are running against communists, um, in the, as was the case in, for example, Italy in 1948, we interfered there because the CIA believed if the communists won, Italian democracy would collapse. Again, in 2000 in Serbia, the idea was that if Milosevic were no longer in power, Serbian democracy would be stronger. So sometimes U.S. presidents have been wrong. There have been missteps, but the general intentions here of Soviet and Russian leaders versus American leaders have differed in that regard. So there's uh, there's one particular story which which you've already mentioned: the East German effort in 1972 to influence the outcome of a no confidence vote in Germany. I would love to have you recount that story for us because I think it has an extraordinarily important bottom line. Can you walk us through that? Absolutely. So so the story of 1972 is that Willy Brandt, who was the chancellor of West Germany, had been engaging in a foreign policy known as Ostpolitik, which was outreach to the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in the hopes of agreeing to normalization agreements and thawing relations between East and West. The Soviet Union and East Germany really liked that. So Willy Brandt is doing that in 1969, 70, 71. As 72 approaches, he's reached a series of agreements with the Soviet Union, with Poland. He's negotiating one with East Germany. And conservatives say, we want to throw you out. We don't like this. We don't agree with your foreign policy. There's a no confidence vote. Willy Brandt is expected to lose that no confidence vote. But he ends up surviving by a margin of two votes to sort of the surprise of not only West Germany, but really onlookers around the world. And the operation in that regard um, was that the two decisive votes that kept Willy Brandt in office were actually purchased by the East German Stasi. Um, East German intelligence officers targeted two vulnerable lawmakers um, who were womanizers, gamblers, debtors, um, every sort of indication you could imagine that would mean that they could be corrupted. They targeted those folks. um, They drew them in slowly as just sort of people who would pass on intelligence. And then they actually gave each of them 50,000 Deutschmarks, almost $100,000 in US dollars um, adjusted for inflation today to abstain from the vote. Um, And had they not done that, the vote of no confidence would have passed and Willie Brandt would have been removed from office. And people suspected there was foul play. There was an investigation um, into potential meddling in the vote thereafter conducted by the West German state, but it came up short and didn't uncover the operation. And in terms of why this matters for our purposes, 
it shows us, A, that these operations can be decisive, that they can change the history of another state, because had that vote of no confidence passed, the entire trajectory of West German history um, would have changed. It also shows the power of targeting, that if you find particular people, if you know what makes them tick, if you know what their beliefs and interests are, you can therefore manipulate them in a much more effective um, manner. And the third thing is that we all have to be, or I believe that we need to be humble in saying what we do and don't know about these sorts of operations. It took decades for this operation to come to light, even though there was a state investigation into it. So as we look at Russia's operations, both in America and around the world today, before Vladimir Putin's advisors start talking, before you know the GRU's papers are released, only Russia knows what Russia does. And we know what we know, but what we know is not necessarily the whole story. So overlay the Mueller investigation on top of your East German story, right? To just drive home the point. Yeah. So the Mueller investigation um, happened right after Russia's operation in 2016. The, The purpose of Mueller's investigation was try to put together what Russia did and also to figure out whether there was cooperation between the Trump campaign Um, and Russia. And what the Stasi case tells us is two things. One is that that question of collusion kind of misses the the point, because in the Stasi instance, Willie Brandt was specifically left out of the fold, purposely left out of the fold. The idea being that if he had been looped in and then that cooperation had been uncovered, Willie Brandt's political career would have collapsed and the Stasi's objective would have been completely undermined. So there's a strong case to be made for not actually cooperating at all with the person you're trying to help to protect that person. The second thing that this shows is that the Mueller investigation is certainly a really great start. But when I interviewed folks who were serving in the intelligence community in 2016, they they say, they're the first to say, we don't know the full extent of what Russia did. Something that I imagine we'll talk about is the extent of Russian activity in voting systems. You know, it was striking to me, though, when I asked people like Jim Clapper or Susan Rice, do you know that Russia didn't alter voter data or vote tallies? What they said was, we saw no evidence of it, but that by no means means that it didn't happen. And that's sort of just the best we can do when it comes to covert operations, because the point of covert operations is that they're covert. We can try our best to get to the bottom of them, but the state that executed them knows what that state did. And then all of us are just trying to put the pieces together. So, so David, two more two more questions on on the history, and the first is we just heard an example of covert electoral inf- influence that actually worked, right? That actually changed the outcome. But in general, does it work? What's your sense on that? So, so I would actually say the question of effectiveness is one of the most clear themes in this history, and it's also one of the most instructive because there's the reality and there's the perception. So the reality in operations to influence voters, not operations to change votes, because that's where you could really measure impact. But most of the time, what people, what these states are doing is trying to manipulate people. So for those sorts of operations, the reality is that you really can't measure it, which is that whether it's in 1948 in Italy, where the CIA and KGB went toe to toe, the same thing in 64 in Chile, elections all over the world in Guyana, in in Japan, in El Salvador, etc., even up until to, to Serbia in 2000, all of the officers, the intelligence officers who I interviewed involved in those operations said, you know, we don't actually know how effective this was. We can guess, but we don't know. And, you know, I interviewed the chief historian of the CIA and, you know, even 70 plus years later, after Italy's 1948 election, I asked him, 
you know, do you know that the, the effectiveness of this? And he said, you know, we act, we still debate it. We still debate how much of a difference we made. And that is 70 plus years later. So that is the reality. But the perception matters from the sense of the interfering actor. There's, there's a pattern here, which is that when an interfering actor's preferred outcome is achieved, when you interfere to help someone and that person wins, interfering actors tend to sort of just assume that that was because of them. And that it was the case after Italy's 1948 election when the CIA's preferred candidate won. Everyone was, you know, high, uh, metaphorically popping champagne and saying, you know, this was because of us and we therefore need to do it more. That's why after Russia's 2016 election, I was uh, Russia's 2016 operation, I was struck by intercepted communications that have been released of the social media trolls at the Internet Research Agency saying, you know, we made America great. They don't actually know if they did that, but if they believe that they did that, that indicates to me that Russia will a uh, you know believe in the efficacy of this sort of operation, and then b continue to interfere not only in our elections but in elections around the world because they believe that it's working, even if they can't actually prove it. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with David. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So the second question and last question on the history piece of this, David, is the book focuses on Russia and the U.S., and we've heard of one story um, about the East Germans, but have other countries besides Russia and the United States, and in this one case, East Germany, have other countries been involved in covert electoral interference? Yeah, so I would say that um, up until now, this has really been a Russian and American story, Um, you know. First, the up number one is Russia. Number two is America, and perhaps now we'll see other countries trying to get into the game. But it really is a tradition of Russian and American intelligence. And I did, I scoured as many materials as I could. I interviewed more than 130 officials, including um, a former KGB general and eight former CIA directors. I examined archives across six countries: CIA, Stasi, KGB, and others trying to put this story into as full of you as possible. And what I found is really that this had been first a Soviet thing, then a Soviet and American thing, with rare exceptions like the Stasi, and then now it's a Russian thing. And if it starts to fit the objectives of other states, perhaps they'll start doing it on a case-by-case basis. But to do this on a global basis, you need to have a global reason to do it on a global basis. We had that with containment. The Soviet Union had that in seeking to spread communism. Putin now has that in seeking to back disruptive and authoritarian-minded candidates. I'm not necessarily sure that any other state has that a reason to be interfering covertly in elections around the world, let alone the experience and tradition to actually do that, which no other state does, in fact, have. Okay, so 2016, let's shift to 2016. Um, One of the key points in your book, I thought, is that it's very important to see what the Russians did in 2016 as a continuation of their long history, right? With one twist, which is taking advantage of the digital technologies that are now available. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I I would say the number one myth, if there is a myth that I'm trying to dispel in this book, is that Putin is some great inventor 
or that what he did in 2016 came out of nowhere because in fact each of his three tactics as well as his overarching operation was a direct continuation of what Russia's done um in the past and also in some cases what America has done i mean look at what he was trying to do he was trying to sow discord help one candidate and hurt another candidate that is nothing new the kgb did that in many different us elections during the cold war and russian intelligence has done that in many elections around the world what Putin did in our voting systems in 2016 was that he used his hackers to penetrate our election infrastructure to position him to manipulate vote tallies or voter data. Okay, well, in the post-war period, Joseph Stalin manipulated the election infrastructure, um, vote tallies, voter data of states across Eastern Europe. And Russia has been doing the same thing in countries around the world, including Ukraine in 2014, where hackers actually did sabotage um, Ukrainian voting systems. The second thing with the DNC hack and release and the Podesta hack and release, releasing stolen emails. What that really was, was taking private information about public figures and publicizing it, outing it, revealing it to the world. And that is as much of the KGB tradition as anything. I mean, I like Kalugin, a former KGB general who I interviewed when I talked to him about that in particular. It's like, of course, that's, 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 that's what we've done to the U.S. for decades. In the 1976 election, they tried to find personal information about a presidential candidate, Henry Jackson. Um, they couldn't find it, so they just made it up. And then they leaked it to a bunch of newspapers with the idea of publicizing his private life in order to destroy his candidacy. It didn't work, but they tried. They just didn't have the Internet to do it. And then social media is maybe the gulf where the why is the widest, where people assume it's all new, but it's actually anything but. Because what Russia tried to do across social media was to, you know, inflame racial tensions, target voters based on who they are, prop up one candidate at the expense of another, turn out some voters, suppress other voters, use cutouts to hide your hand, third parties to hide your hand. Again, I can point to examples where the Soviets, the Americans, and now Russia have done that in elections all over the world. So yes, was the scope and scale of Russia's operation new? for sure. But to treat it as if that makes it all new leaves us blind because what these patterns tell us is that we can actually anticipate what's ahead and prepare for it as such. Whereas if we just treat everything as unprecedented, we have no history and we're stuck in the here and now bracing for what's next without any actual plan of action to defend against it. So David, there's been there's been a ton written on 2016 and Russian interference. I found your uh, rendition of it, one of one of the best I've seen, but I also found I also found some unique perspectives that I haven't seen in other renditions of the story, and I'd love to get you talking about those unique perspectives, at least how I see them. And the first is that you say that we can really only understand the Obama administration's response to Russia's operation if we distinguish between efforts to change ballots and efforts to change minds. Talk about that. So that that distinction was was what drove the Obama administration's policymaking in the summer and the fall of 2016, which is that of those three Russian tactics that I just listed out, social media was extremely poorly understood. So we can kind of put that off to the side. So you had the email hacks, um, which started with the DNC release in July. And then you had aggressive Russian intrusions into our voting systems, into our voter registration databases all over the country. And the Obama administration was extraordinarily captivated by, startled by, and afraid of what Russia would do with that access, whether Russia would seek to disrupt our voting process, would change ballots, would cause chaos on election day, would undermine the legitimacy of the election in doing so. 
and the Obama administration's policy response in the summer and fall of 2016, in the words of, of his chief advisors, was around one objective, which was to prevent that from happening, was to guard against an attack against our election infrastructure. So that was the priority. The emails, which folks tend to view as what the Obama administration was responding to, was sort of dismissed as not really that important. Um, and is something that could be responded to later. So that was why there was a fear that this question of when Obama was going to retaliate against Russia, there was a fear that if he were to hit back against Russia for releasing emails, Putin would then respond by manipulating our voting systems. He would be provoked into escalating. So the argument that won the day was that retaliating against him for releasing emails could wait so long as he didn't cross a red line in the words of his advi- of Obama's advisors that was actually proceeding to affect ballots. And as long as he didn't cross that red line, retaliation could wait until after Election Day. So that's what was driving their response. And that's why on Election Day itself, there were crisis teams actually in the White House and DHS bracing for a Russian cyber attack against our voting systems. That was the priority. So the second unique perspective I saw is you saying Putin had absolutely no intention of ceasing his interference in American politics had Secretary Clinton won. Talk about that. Yeah, that's another, that's another, that's another great myth, which is that this is all about Donald Trump. You know, Russia's operation started in 2014. Um, and the initial goal of that was to sow discord and to undermine Secretary Clinton, whom Putin loathes. Once Trump actually ran uh, or announced his campaign, the objective shifted. A third objective was added to the fold. But on Election Day itself, according to Jim Clapper and John Brennan, Putin still expected um, Trump to lose, and Russia was preparing to destabilize Secretary Clinton's administration by releasing more, you know, damaging materials by some of um, people who were in government at the time believe revealing that voter data had been altered in order to try to undermine her standing. So Russia had plans to continue interfering, and there's this general, and the general point here too is that interference operations do not stop with a single election. When a country decides that it's in its interest to interfere in another country's elections, that lasts beyond one vote. If you just interfere in one election and achieve your objectives and then ignore the next, then that undoes whatever you achieved the previous time. And, you know, the KGB interfered in our 1960, 1968, 1976, and 1984 elections. Russia interfered in our 2016 elections. This is a long running story, and that story will continue regardless of whether Donald Trump is active in American politics. So, David, before we switch to what we should be doing about all this, I want to take a moment and talk about 2020. The election is now only four months away. And I'm wondering, looking back over the history and everything we've just talked about, what what do you expect from the Russians uh, this time around? Yeah, um, I mean, I would say thinking logically, um, I'm watching for a couple of different things. What I'm watching for from between now and Election Day is how Russia seeks to manipulate voters, how Russia seeks to corrupt our information space in order to get Americans to support Donald Trump um, and also in order to sow discord and um, chaos in our society. I'm watching for on Election Day itself, um, whether Russia will proceed to affect ballots, the fear of the Obama administration the last time around, whether with Donald Trump in office, so someone who has invited rather than deterred or sought to deter foreign interference in our elections, whether the calculus of Russia's uh, a government of Putin will change and they'll choose to escalate their operation. The next thing I'm watching for, I would say, is whether um, 
Trump will up his asks or will make new asks if he seems to be losing. A pattern of history is that leaders who are comfortable asking for foreign help tend to ask for more and more and more if they feel like they might fall from power. Um, That's something that I would keep my eye out for. I would also keep my eye out for whether Trump will seek to incite unrest or seek to delegitimize the election if he loses. That's something that has always been a pattern and contested um, heated elections in which foreign actors are engaged, the fear that if it goes one way or another, violence will erupt, um, the, that the outcome will actually be delegitimized in itself. We're especially vulnerable to that because of the coronavirus and because of Trump's allegations of a rigged vote. And then the last thing I'm watching out for, I would say, is whether there's a contingency plan, whether, you know, even if Trump, let's say Trump loses, what else is Russia then going to do? How will Russia continue to engage in our politics? Um, And that question um, remains to be seen. And of course, a couple of different things would have to happen to make that so. But there there should be no illusion that if Donald Trump loses, Russia will be done with engaging in American politics. That's just not um, how the Russian government works. Is there anything that the Russians have done in terms of covert electoral interference historically that they didn't do in 2016 that might might appear in 2020? Yeah, I would say, I mean, what did, what have they done historically that they didn't do? So far as we know, or so far as I know, the Russians weren't bankrolling the Trump campaign. Um, so that is a tactic that certainly has been used in the past um, that to, to, to fund a, a campaign. I doubt Russia would use that now because I don't think it's necessary. And I think it could be detected and caught. And I think then that would undermine Trump. So I don't expect to see that. Um I do think the main thing to watch out for that Russia did not do the last time around, but what Russia has done abroad is seek to cause chaos at polling places, is seek to delegitimize confidence in the election. In Ukraine, for instance, in 2014, Russian hackers had planted a program in Ukraine's electoral commission that would have displayed an inaccurate um, vote tally that would have said this person won when really someone else won. So you wouldn't have really changed the results. You would have just announced the wrong results, which would have created tons of confusion within Ukrainian society. And ironically, the Ukrainians caught that virus and took it down, but Russian state media still posted the, the, the inaccurate results because they were ready to go. And I would say that we should be ready for there to be some sort of plan here um, to degrade, disrupt our democracy by delegitimizing the outcome of the election, because what Putin's after here is chaos, is dysfunction, is corrupting democracies. Trump is a means to that end, but there are other ways of achieving it, one of which is just making Americans wonder whether their election was fair at all. So David, how much of a threat do you think Russia's covert interference is to our democracy at the end of the day. So I, I'm biased here because I study this, but I think it's but I think it's extraordinarily um, an extraordinary threat because it, it, it's ironic almost that Putin's um, Putin's aims are more ambitious um, than Soviet leaders were, at least when it comes to American politics, because. What Soviet leaders tried to do was just get friendlier American governments. You know, they tried to undermine Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan because they thought that their opponents would be have policies that were more in line with Russia's um, or with the Soviet Union's. What Putin's trying to do is actually transform the American system. Putin is trying to elect leaders who will degrade American democracy, who will bring to American democracy Russian attributes. Um, and who over time will cause America to be unable to lead abroad, um, to be unable to function as a, as, a, as a democracy, 
to make it so that he, Putin can say to his own people, see, democracy doesn't work, to make it so that Putin can latch on to our allies who we're moving away from because of those nationalist isolationist instincts. So if, if Putin's vision is realized and we should be under no illusions that he doesn't have a vision, he does. America will become a society we don't necessarily recognize, and Americans will no longer believe in their process of succession. And without a process of succession, you don't really have a democracy because the process of succession provides for the future. But if folks start assuming that their elections aren't, in fact, valid, um, if they feel as though their leaders and their government is corrupt, then our country is no longer functioning as the system that we have now and is a system that I really value as a young person who wants to live in a well-functioning democracy where progress can be made and where we can believe that our leaders um, not only deserve to be there, but were there because of the will of the American people and not foreigners. So I think it's, I think it's essential. So David, what do we do about all this? What's the, what's the right policy approach to dealing with these attacks? Walk us through your thinking. My thinking here is that um, if Russia is trying to tear down our democracy, um, which it is, then we need to try to renew our democracy. Um, and we need to try to just make ourselves invulnerable to this, both at home and abroad. And what that means at home is we need to fortify our voting systems. That's not something that, in my opinion, can be left as, oh, maybe Russia could alter ballots. That needs to be resolved, whether through cybersecurity requirements passed by the Congress or otherwise. We can't be in a position where foreign adversaries can manipulate the ballots of American citizens. We also have to address efforts to manipulate voters' minds. That means tackling both the social media and email components. With social media, um, that means transparency by the companies themselves. It means private-public cooperation. It means congressional legislation. Um, with emails, it means um, journalists being a bit more mindful of what they're covering and why and who wants them to be covering it. And it means American citizens deciding not to be gullible and let themselves be played because some sort of emails were released that might seem a little, you know, sensational or otherwise and actually wonder who wants you to be seeing this. Um, and beyond that, we also need to be getting at uh, the fissures in our society, the dysfunction in our Congress, in our legislative process, because when a country is divided, when a country isn't functioning, it's much more vulnerable to subversion. And if we can get our democracy working better and also renew things like local media, like our education system, we be around digital education, we become much less vulnerable to this. And in conjunction with that renewal at home, we need to renew our leadership abroad by leading democracies against this kind of digital war. I mean, I think it's ridiculous that if a Russian tank goes into Estonia, we're obliged to go to war. And yet if a Russian, Russian hackers attack the heart of Estonian democracy, which is their elections, we all shrug. It doesn't make sense. So I, I, I think we need to work with our democracies to unite against this threat, to define costs for it, um, to prioritize it in our conversations with, with Russia and other countries who decide to imitate them. And we also need to not engage in this type of behavior ourselves to have any sort of credibility in making that argument, which is why I believe the CIA um, should ban the practice of covert electoral interference. And I think if you if you have that renewal at home and abroad, um, you can make meaningful progress in mitigating the effectiveness of these operations. But we also have to have clear eyes that it's not going to just go away. Like Lenin, Putin, they're right. This is this is a practice. Elections are penetrable. The question is just how we can make them more defendable. But this has been happening for 100 years. It's going to continue to happen. And we just have to make sure our democracy can function despite it. The book is rigged. America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. The author is David Scheimer. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was David Scheimer. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. 
This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.